it's time that we've arrived. If you've been following along, we've discussed the concepts of balance, complexity, we've touched on terroir, and we've even addressed some theories as to where flavor comes from and how to taste. Let's now shift gears, and we'll tie this all together and ask the obvious, what makes a good wine good? I would argue that there are four major factors, those being nuance, harmony, elegance, and length. And all of these tie into our prior discourse. Nuance is the first force for good in a wine. Nuance is the layers of aromas that contribute to flavor and are the driving force behind complexity as it stands. When a wine has nuance, it has barely detectable aromas that were referenced earlier in the lessons, tertiary characteristics namely. Nuance may also imply that the wine will have some age, or simply may have been aged or exposed to oxygen slowly within the confines of the all-important winemaking process. These subtleties would include a touch of earthiness, think geosmin, or the smell of dead leaves or stale water. Often another great subtlety in wine is the Britannomyces, specifically in Rhone Valley wines of the Northern Rhone. This would be the flavor of horsiness, manure, straw, hay, or even simply barnyard as a descriptor. Where an issue arises is when we get the amount right. Winemakers don't have measuring cups for these chemicals. They must rely on natural processes. This can often imply that if you taste these flavors, perhaps they have been encouraged by organic, biodynamic, or sustainable viticulture. In the second unit, we touched on this subject with some regards to perceived floral characteristics that one can encounter when nosing the glass. Sometimes the herbaceous nature of what we will regard in a wine can be due to cross-pollination, the breeze of oils, and the vineyard conditions wafting onto the grape skins and diluting natural yeasts with those of other plants also possible. Soil also plays a factor in complexity as well. Some of those chemicals native to wine that make up what we know as mouthfeel can deliver certain flavors and broader capacity to your olfactory than others, notably that elusive minerality that winos are always raving about. Remember, minerality in wine is the results of fermentation esters, not actual minerals. But really, nuance just implies a wide array of different characteristics that are on display, yet subtly. Harmony is subtlety. Subtlety is key to a fine wine. That is why we use the term nuance and not complexity on its own. This is where harmony plays a role. Harmony is not balance like we discussed earlier. In unit three, though it includes balance. Harmony is the accord of all of the elements that make up flavor in a wine and the balance therein. Nobody wants a wine that tastes distinctly of manure, though I would expect some flavors of manure in a Bandol or Southern Rhone blend. I certainly do not want this flavor on full display for obvious reasons. Harmony, then, is how well all of the elements play together when communicating with each other. Does one of them stand out like SpaghettiOs on a pizza or like a passage of the message paraphrase in a properly exegeted biblical sermon? Likewise, harmony can imply proper melding together of all the elements of a wine. If there is a profile of flavors that don't go well together, the wine is in disarray. The parts don't harmonize very well. Perhaps as well, there are two elements that cause another flavor to be on full display. I once tried a white wine, I won't say from where, that tasted of celery and white pepper, but upon swallowing, I was left with the mouth-numbing flavor of dish soap. It was properly foul. 
Harmony simply means that the tertiary flavors fit nicely with secondary flavors and that they all blend well under the umbrella of primary flavors. It also includes the overall balance that we discussed earlier. Balance is crucial to achieve harmony, but no one wants to drink a wine that's too sweet or too acidic, so much so that it distracts from flavor. An unbalanced wine that is too rich can dominate with primary characteristics, and it'll lack that intrusive, all-elusive nuance needed to achieve good harmony. Elegance involves a wine's texture. It's like the feng shui of the wine. It's how the furniture is arranged, and it encompasses two major focuses, stratification and texture. Stratification is how the wine is layered. When do the different elements of complexity kick in, and when are they most noticeable? Does the flavor of manure hit you in a wine before the flavor of minerality? Realistically, we profile all of our flavors as primary, secondary, and tertiary, but some of them aren't going to fit into those categories because that's the order that we would like the flavor to hit us. I know I keep using this example, but unordered wine can mean a split-second mouthfeel of manure, even if it's just a dainty whiff. I, I'm threatening this against you. You don't want to have... <laughs> you certainly want the most complexity possible when you're talking about manure. So I want, I want the kitchen sink of complexity before I taste manure. Simple as that. Uh, we want layers of flavor. When you hear people address a wine's, quote, high notes or low notes, this concept is what they're referring to. High notes make up the lighter flavors that come on later, like floral characteristics, low notes, the heavier, darker flavors of fruit or earthiness that set in immediately and carry the tone of the wine. These are common descriptors of the wine's overall bouquet. A wine bouquet... A wine bouquet is harmonized and it's elegant. If a wine has a bouquet, this implies elegance. Bouquet is generally reserved for wines that show signs of age, and those that have aged nicely, that is. All of the components align properly and are represented in suitable order. But structure is required for elegance as well. Structure is the other component. It's a textural component. When you actually taste a wine, good structure should be one of the things that you look for. Structure is related to mouthfeel, but it has more to do with tannin. If you recall, mouthfeel is the weight of a wine. Extra sugar means more glycerin, more alcohol. That's going to add heat. That's going to add a burn to the throat, which makes a wine feel rich on the palate. Tannin is a major component pertaining to elegance. Tannin are polymorphic molecules found in all plant material, including bark, leaves, and grape skins. Even larger quantities are found in grape seeds. They get into red wines via crushed skins of the grapes. Too much crushing can break the seeds, known as pips, releasing far too much tannin into a wine and rendering the wine undrinkable. So winemakers are careful to avoid that folly. On the palate, tannin presents itself as a rubber glove, sometimes flower-like, mouth-drying, water-absorbing sensation in the back of the throat and can be why people associate wines with more tannin as being very dry. It's a very acidic molecule as well. Interestingly, if you are aging a wine in oak barrels or barrique, these smaller oak barrels can impart tannin of their own, which do not soften with age. The pH is quite high in tannin, so when it brushes up against your taste buds, this can add a quality of acid as well. Tannins bind to protein and amino acids, which 
are found in wine, but they're also found in saliva. So tannin in wine will often dry your mouth out because it's binding to your saliva and absorbing the water. If you want an example of a heavy tannin drink, leave a tea bag of black tea and let it sit until the water is cold. Then take a drink. You should taste both acidity and grippy texture of tannin and grippy mouth-drying texture of tannin. Tannin is a healthy component of wine, which harbors the wine's antioxidant properties. Sagrantino is a varietal from Italy, which harbors the most tannin of any other winemaking grape. It also has some of the lowest sugar levels and transfers the most antioxidants into the bloodstream, making it my pick for the healthiest wine, if there was such a thing. Tannin, though, is only ever found in red wines or orange-white wines in some cases that were aged on the skins. If a white wine shows gritty bitterness in the back of the throat, it's a good bet that those are actually trace polyphenols that are found alongside tannin in skins of both red and white wines, though they're more tasteable and detectable because of the lack of tannin. Phenolic bitterness tastes like a bitter, drying flavor that you might experience when you eat a chewable multivitamin. The effects of polyphenols can also be found in the aging process. That is specifically oak aging. Like any other plant, oak trees have polyphenols and tannin inside of all of their components, including the meat used to make the barrels. Throughout the barrel's lifespan, it will pass these tannins onto the wine, but in much smaller amounts than grape skins will. As a barrel gets older, it harbors more and more vintages of wine. This transfer of tannin becomes more and more minuscule, that is, less and less. The oak also becomes softer and softer, resulting in more holes in the oak, generally speaking, allowing more transfer of oxygen to soften the wines during aging. Oxygen is the best remedy for a grippy wine. All wines leave the winery with somewhat heavy-handed tannin. But by the time the racking has been completed, that is filtering the wines off from the top and leaving all of the disassociated heavier objects on the bottom of the barrel, some of these tannins have been softened due to the presence of oxygen. With time, oxygen acts to soften tannin and refine the molecule so that it loosens its sandpaper-like structure and over time fades into more of a silky ribbon-like texture. Ribbony texture can be a feature of any wine, but aging must be completed in order to achieve this. All aging vessels allow some oxygen inside of them, including cork on the bottles. Of course, the porous oak barrels themselves also allow for minuscule amounts of oxygen exposure. A small amount of oxygen exposure is important because too much oxygen can mean wine spoils and it begins to turn to vinegar, resulting in that volatile acidity, resulting in the volatile acidity which we talked about in Unit 2. A very key side note on aging, realistically, it's good to follow the 95-5 rule. Only about 5% of wines were genuinely made to be aged in the bottle by consumers. In the majority of cases, even wine from very prestigious regions is meant to be opened up right away and drunk immediately upon purchase. Don't expect to see a whole lot of positive change in a bottle that costs less than $100 or even $50. There is a trend in winemaking today to highlight wines which can be drunk upon the return from the store. This means that in most bottles, aging only results in lost fruit character. Winemakers soften tannins before sale and expose the wines to an optimal amount of oxygen during the winemaking process to make wines that are presently drinkable. 
Because of this added effort, it is not uncommon to see some mineral tertiary characteristics in even a youthful wine. Allowing small parts of oxygen means a wine's aging takes a long time to soften tannins, but the layered complexity that the process affords is worth the wait. Without this time, just funneling wine during the winemaking process to soften tannin results in uneven softening and phenolic bitterness from other polyphenols that need longer oxygen exposure times. Decanting is an abbreviated expression of this concept. Decanting allows us, the drinkers, to expose the wine to oxygen to open up the flavors of the wine, sort the tannin, and remove sediment. That's what decanting is actually for. Nothing more, nothing less. There are two predominant reasons to decant a wine. The first is that it's an old wine, and there may be some sediment at the bottom that you wish to strain off. The decanting helps to awaken old wines and expose their tertiary characteristics far better in most cases. Another reason is because the wine is slightly reduced or is not presenting its full flavor profile. We call either of these bottling mishaps tightness. The wine might taste slightly acidic, it might be kind of boring, lacking in much flavor of anything besides sour red or black fruit, might smell like gunpowder or sulfury depending on the nose. The last reason to decant is to soften the tannins of a presumably harsh wine. This is more common in newer wines. There are different types and styles of decanters, so be sure you don't get a whiskey decanter because that really is not going to help you very much in these, any of these situations. You need a decanter with a medium or wide base. Realistically, there's no benefit to a ton of fancy glassware. Just go for the standard wine-based decanter. The need, honestly, to decant is going to be very rare. And for all that is tasteful in the world, you do not need to go get a decanter with a lid by any means. It's also best to chill your decanter before you pour wine into it. Give the wine a few good sloshes around in the decanter. It will take about 30 minutes on a new wine and sometimes up to three hours or four hours to fully decant an old wine. If you are expecting guests, it may be desirable to open the wine well before they arrive so that the bottle will be ready. What's easier is to pour the new wine into deep glasses and let it sit for 15 or 20 minutes, avoiding decanting entirely and giving a few gentle stirs if the wine needs to breathe. When people are talking about good structure, they're referring to the pleasant feel of tannin on the tongue. There are, of course, unaged wines that will have decent, very pleasant tannin, but they would lack the structure that an aged wine would have, being ribbon-like texture. The last thing anyone wants from a wine is a bitter, astringent, and sandpapery-like finish to their wine. All of these mouthpeel components contribute to a wine's elegance on the palate. While we're on the subject of tannin, it's time to examine the most crucial component of a wine's worthiness, and that is finish. Tannin directly influences the finish. Tannin directly influences the finish that it carries the drinker into. The most crucial element of finish is not the swallowing aspect of the wine, but the actual length of the flavor and the tannin that linger on your mouth post-swallowing. Tannin is the vehicle that drives the drinker over the finish line into the wine's length, and this is the most crucial component. This is how, literally, a Grand Cru wine is measured against a Premier Cru wine in some regions like Burgundy. First of all, we want a wine that has silky tannins and no phenolic bitterness. Remember, tannin is mouth-drying and unpleasant when in ineloquent quantity. If tannin dries up on the throat, it's a dead finish. If alcohol burns the throat or is not seated well in the blend as it should be, it's also a dead finish. If glycerin is jammy and flabby and it coats the mouth, this is a dead finish as well. 
Furthermore, the length should carry the full bouquet of flavors at the climax of the wine's expression. Manure should not be the driving factor in length. The bouquet should fade beautifully as time carries on, and the flavors should subside in just about the order which they appeared. Length, then, is the metric by which nuance, harmony, and elegance can be measured, and the initial profile of the wine must be pleasant in order for the length to unravel the flavor components of the wine during the process of the finish. So how long should a finish be? Well, in Burgundy, the birthplace of length, producers unanimously affirm quality wine should show its full bouquet 30 seconds after swallowing for village level, one minute for premier crew, and a whopping two minute for grand crew. But realistically, a good drinking wine should show its bouquet for at least 30 seconds prior to swallowing. These are solid metrics that you can use to judge a wine's quality by more than just whether you like it or not. You may have seen the 100-point system for rating wines before at your local wine shop or perhaps even associated with a wine deal online. If you recall, in the last installment of this course, I talked a little bit about the Robert Parker Wine Advocate and its effect on wine styles of the last 30 years or so. Well, he's the man who invented the 100-point system that is used by most major retail publications. Today, you can see wine labels decorated with ribbons that say 96 points by such and such magazine or so-and-so whoever, and while these may be helpful to those familiar with those names of the reviewers themselves, they can be slightly distracting to those who are not. If you don't know whether you like the palate of the reviewer, you have no solid indications of the metrics by which they judged the 96-point wine, the rating system that means very little besides flashy marketing. We've already been over the stream of consciousness note-taking, but let's revisit this concept and make some additions. If you recall, we first process the aromas, then taste, swirl in the palate, then write what comes to your mind. Head back to the wines of our tasting, Vincent Girardin, Saltenay, and La Tour de Vassin. Review your stream of consciousness tasting notes from earlier. This time, let's think about the flavors in the chart from the previous lessons. Let the aromas linger for a second and see if your initial thoughts still make sense all this time later. Now take a drink. Between the smells and tastes, ortho and retronasal respectively, can you come up with good examples of primary, secondary, and tertiary characteristics? Maybe at least two of each, how about three or four? Now consider the timing. Consider whether the flavors come on in a pleasant manner. When does each one arrive on the palate, and does it do so in a nice order? Are there any off flavors? Write down anything that seems off to you. Consider the balance too. Does the wine seem to have good balance between acidity and sugar? Maybe it leans one way or the other, or maybe it feels pretty well balanced. Lastly, observe the wine for structure and consider mouthfeel. This follows along wine balance and flavor, but the wine shouldn't coat your mouth. It shouldn't feel sickly or hot in your throat. It certainly shouldn't be tastelessly light or watery or on the opposite end grippy sandpaper like or harsh realistically both of these wines should be pretty good all-rounders i wouldn't pick any unpleasant wines for this task but consider which style you like better and why this is an awesome moment for further reflection as you write your tasting notes last and perhaps most importantly count the finish set a timer if you need to and count out how long the wine feels as though it's still in your mouth all the flavors should be present. Remember, this truly is the test of a noteworthy wine. The finish on a decent drinking wine should be at least 30 seconds, and you should be able to taste the vast majority of the wine's bouquet or aroma, whichever one it seems to have. 
Again, in the case of younger wines, you're probably going to be looking for just the simple aromas. Bouquet comes along with age and tertiary characteristics. Let's give these wines a rating. Now, of course, there's no scientific rating system for wine, and wine is totally, completely subjective. But there are some things that we can do that we can definitely count on when it comes to a wine's quality that will make it easier for us to rate them on a categorical basis. These are not science, but again, they are nuance, harmony, elegance, and length. Now that I bored you to death by defining all of them ad nauseum, I'll spare you the rehash. I prefer to use the much more old-fashioned 20-point system, as other wine reviewers do, like Jancis Robinson, and give these wines clearly defined categories. These are things that I look for as I'm tasting a wine. As I write these notes, I'm mentally scoring each category, and then I'm using the stream-of-consciousness method of taking notes on them, bearing in mind the categories that I'm considering. The 20-point system is neater and cleaner, in my opinion, while still giving a real feel in the way that Fahrenheit gives a real feel of temperature. My issue with the 100-point system is it's too finite. Who is to say that one wine is one point superior to another one that you had last month? Who is going to remember something that they tried so long ago and decide whether it deserves that one one one-hundredth of a point over another wine? Besides that, I rarely see anyone give a score lower than an 80. Certainly not all the world's wines can be 95s all the time. The 20-point system gives me a 5-point spread over the 100-point system and allows me to account for the wine's arability, ageworthiness, and typicity without arguing over whether one wine truly deserves one point marker over another. But at the end of the day, you can use whatever rating system you want, whatever you like. I give a wine 5 points for meeting each of the four categories. That means a truly youthful but excellent drinking wine now can expect to score a reasonable 16. Nuance. For the full five points, a wine should have two notable secondary characteristics and two tertiary. All should blend well with the wine and not be offensive or standoffish. Points are removed for any missing or obscene flavors. Harmony. For a full five points, a wine should have a perfect balance between acidity and sweetness. The flavors should all work very well together. Elegance. For a full five points, a wine must have good tannic structure, and the mouthfeel should be very pleasant. Points deducted for flabbiness, lightness, grippy tannin, or untimely flavors. Length. For a full five points, the finish must be at least two and a half minutes. It must contain all elements of the wine's flavor profile, and it must be, more importantly, pleasant to drink. Let's go over the score for Domaine Vincent Girardin Centenay Terre d'Enfance. Nuance. I gave it a 3. This wine lacks the tertiary characteristics due to its general youth. Secondary characteristics of lily and cinnamon are present. Harmony. I gave this wine a 5. Everything is where it should be. All the flavors are very pleasant. The acidity and sugar balance is pretty good. Elegance. 3. This wine is layered. The tannin is a little on the firm side. Not sandpapery, but certainly not a ribbon either. Length. All flavors remained. There was an average finish of 30 seconds, making this a very nice drinking wine. I gave it a 3. Altogether, I would give this wine probably a 14 out of 20. Here are my tasting notes. Smells of fresh, ripe strawberry, raspberry, white lily, and cinnamon stewed quince. Some wet stone, a bit of bite. Light acidity layers well. Decent finish. Very simple and elegant. You don't need to go too complex with your tasting notes. Keep your tasting notes very simple and use 
words that you're familiar with. This will help you remember the wines when you see them in the store once again. Maybe you'll want to try a different vintage later on. Right now, put together your own notes and score for La Tour de Besson. I would urge you to view the chapters on Burgundy and Bordeaux as well, which go more in-depth of nuance, which more which will go over more in-depth nuance of the two areas, which will go over more in-depth nuance of the two areas. This is the end of the Wine 01 segment here on the Prem Crew podcast, The Wide World of Wine. Next week, we're going to be looking at Burgundian wine, specifically those of the Cote d'Or, where that Vincent Girardin Santenay is from. But we're going to leave the Wine 01 tasting segment. So be prepared to move into some highly intellectual concepts regarding the world of wine. Thanks so much for listening, and join me again next week. 